Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Hey, well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Strength to Strength. Our mission here is at Strength to Strength is to advance Jesus' kingdom by assisting the church in earnestly contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And one of the ways we do that is through thought-provoking topics. And stimulating candid discussions is another way, and I hope that some of both of that happens here this morning. Uh, really grateful to have Brother Paul Garber on talking about continuing this series on um, the kingdom come, and especially looking at promises to Israel today. So, welcome here, everyone. We will have a Time for Q and A after Paul's talk, and also a reminder that at 3 p.m. this afternoon we're having another, the final one of this series on God's promises to Israel fulfilled. So I think without much further ado, we'll get started. Let's let's have a let's have an opening prayer here. Father, I thank you for this new day. Thank you for your goodness and mercy on us, and I just thank you for the privilege it is to be your people and to be part of your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, for, for those of us who you've, you've brought into your kingdom, we continue to call others and, and invite them into your kingdom and to, to find the, um, the wholeness and the, the rest and the fulfillment that that brings. God, I just pray that you would, that your kingdom will be done, your kingdom will come. And I pray for Brother Paul as he speaks this morning. I pray your blessing on him. And, and as, we, as we look at this important topic of, of your kingdom come, the way that relates to, to promises to Israel and maybe even how that relates to us today. God, I pray for, for his voice especially, that you would give him um, strength and that, that his voice would be strong enough for this task. And yeah, God bless you. God bless us. And may we honor you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Paul, it's yours. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, glad to be here. I have to apologize for my voice. I've been battling this cold for the past uh, over a week, and so my voice is not as clear as it could be, but I'll do my best. In, uh, in communicating uh, as best I can. So welcome here. So uh, we are going to continue our discussion that we started a few weeks ago, about four weeks ago, uh, on the kingdom promises to Israel. And we started this uh, series back in January. And this is the second of those talks. And then this afternoon, we have a, another one. So in these messages, I am especially coming against the popular modern system of dispensational premillennialism. And the reason I come against dispensationalism so strongly is because it undermines the kingdom theology that Jesus and the apostles preached in almost every way. It has been one of the greatest tools of the enemy in the history of the church to undermine God's kingdom and its advancement. And so uh, since I am pro the advancement of the kingdom, I 
have to be anti-dispensational. So if you don't know yet what dispensationalism is and its beginnings, Adam Boyd has a couple of really good messages on strength to strength that you can go back and listen to uh, for the history and the beginnings and some of the teachings of dispensationalism. So I, I highly recommend going back and listening to those. I just listened to those two messages this week, and I uh, realized that I have a little bit of overlap uh, with his messages. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, as I prepare this, these are important things to talk about. So I do have a little bit of overlap of information uh, with Adam's uh, messages. I will freely admit this, that I would go farther than I think Adam would in condemning this system. Uh, not the gullible people that are caught up in this system, but the system itself. It is another gospel, plain and simple. The gospel is the good news of the arrival of the kingdom. That's what Jesus preached. That's what the apostles preached. That is the gospel. And dispensationalism teaches that the gospel has, or the kingdom has been, been postponed and is not in effect today. So that's uh, that, I believe, would qualify as a different gospel. It is not the gospel of the kingdom. So I come against the system very strongly, even though uh, we need to be very compassionate and very loving and very gracious to those who are caught up in it. And uh, with love and compassion, uh, show them the error of the system. So just to recap, what we looked at four weeks ago, Old Covenant Israel was a nation that God called out of captivity in Egypt and formed them into a special covenant nation. As the descendants of Jacob were leaving Egypt, they left as a mixed multitude. That's in Exodus 12. With many other people joining them as Moses led them out of Egypt toward Mount Sinai, where God would give them the law by which they would be governed as a nation. So from the start, they were a multi-ethnic nation. Their identity was never defined by race, but by being in covenant with God. People could be added to and cut off from this covenant nation. One thing I want to clarify also since my last talk is that although Israel was never defined ethnically or racially, but rather by covenant, that is not to say that the family line wasn't important. Matthew and Luke both give us Jesus' family line um, from Judah and David. So his claim to kingship was legitimate as an heir of David's throne. That's very different than claiming some sort of racial purity. Jesus' race was anything but pure. And last time we talked about the foundational doctrine of dispensationalism that Israel and Judaism must be defined as a race. So today, another uh, I want to talk about another one of their foundational uh, doctrines, and that is that this race of people must inhabit a certain piece of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Because all the kingdom promises to Israel 
are connected to the land promises to Abraham. And so according to dispensationalism, for the kingdom of God to be established as prophesied, Jesus must sit on a physical throne in the physical land of Israel over a physical race of people. And since that hasn't happened yet, it must be for the future millennial kingdom. So the first two, that Jesus will sit on a physical throne in the physical land of Israel, I don't really have a problem with. It's the third one that I oppose, the racism part. <clears throat> that it has to be for a race of people. So they teach that Jesus arrived on the scene and announced the arrival of the kingdom of God with a physical throne and physical land. The Jews rejected his offer of this messianic kingdom and ended up crucifying him. So because of this rejection, God postponed. And that's a very key um, part of this is that God postponed all his kingdom promises to Israel until Christ's second coming. And he started the church with the Gentiles instead. This postponement idea of the kingdom is a radical departure from the historic faith, but an essential element of the dispensational worldview. Without this alleged postponement, their system simply wouldn't exist. So with all that said, let's go to the Old Testament, to the prophecies and promises, and, and look at some of the, pro the, the promises. There's such a large amount of prophetic material to look at that my biggest struggle was the question what all to include in these messages. So uh, let's start with Abraham. This is where it all starts. God's promises to Abraham. So um, most likely everyone here has at one time or another heard about God's unconditional covenant with Abraham. Especially in re reference to the land in the Middle East that God promised to Abraham. This covenant always comes up in dispensational circles every time there is a war between the modern nation of Israel and one of their enemies, especially the Palestinians, who also have a claim to the land. It's a very common claim that this land was given to Abraham unconditionally. Therefore, the conclusion is that the Zionist Jewish state has every right to exterminate or expel all the Palestinians from within their claimed borders. This, uh, this view, this extreme view of dispensationalism is extremely toxic and is simply wicked and abominable. Uh, I, I, I will say that plainly. Dispensationalism has a lot of blood on their hands. Not to mention it is completely devoid of anything biblical whatsoever. Neither the modern religion of rabbinic Judaism nor the Zionist Jewish state has any legitimate claim or connection to Abraham whatsoever, period. If anybody thinks that the modern Israeli state or government has any connection with Abraham or God's covenant with him, please tell me what it is. I would like to know. 
And if anybody thinks that the modern religion of Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, has any connection with Abraham and God's covenant with him, I would like to know that as well. <clears throat> the fact is there is simply no connection whatsoever. Does a Zionist government, the Knesset, have a covenant with God? Of course not. Does the religion of rabbinic Judaism have a covenant with God? Of course not. Does the alleged race of Ju Judaism have a covenant with God? No. I'll tell you who has a covenant with God. It is the seed of Abraham. And so we want to look at Abraham and look at God's promises to Abraham. <clears throat> of course, dispensationalism doesn't need a connection with modern Israel to Abraham. All they need is to assert something uh, loudly enough and dogmatically enough with some uh, ridiculous claim about some alleged Jewish race and prophecies being fulfilled before our very eyes. And uh, gullible people will blithely buy into their system. But I don't want to paint all dispensationalists as toxic Zionists. I, I don't want to do that. There are milder forms of dispensationalism and less harmful. Uh, they're not all Zionists, but uh, all forms of dispensationalism does lead in that direction. So that's why we have to be extremely uh, careful um, with that. Okay, let's go to Genesis uh, and see what God's promises to Abraham actually are. These promises are very important because we're talking about the kingdom of God. And God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. That is the kingdom of God. So let's open in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, and here is uh, verse 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So here, the first thing that God does, he gives a command to Abraham, go. Abraham needed to be faithful. He needed to be obedient to God's command. God says, go, Abraham. And then he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So uh, here we have uh, at least three different promises from God to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will give you blessings and you will be a universal blessing to all people. But it was also dependent upon Abraham going. God told Abraham, go from your country. And so for God to bless Abraham the way he promised, Abraham had to go. So that's the first, uh, first verse here. Now let's go to Genesis 15. And this is a fairly long section, but I want to read down to verse 20, 21 just to make sure we don't miss anything. 
So Genesis 15, uh, 15, verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Abram, I am your shield and your reward. You shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be afflicted for four hundred years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possession. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so this is this passage in particular is where the claim is made by dispensationalists that God's land promise to Abram is unconditional because it was only God that passed between the pieces, not both God and Abraham. And in this passage, no conditions are mentioned for this promise to belong to Abraham and to his offspring. So God promised a son, and God promised the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, so a big piece of land. And no conditions are mentioned in this passage. So that's why it is often stated that this land promise to Abraham is unconditional. No matter what Abram does, no matter what his descendants do, this land will always and unconditionally belong to them. But is that the case? If God gives a promise with no conditions stated, does that make the promise unconditional? So let's grant, just for the sake of argument, that this promise is unconditional. That does not say that being a child and an heir of Abraham is unconditional. So uh, uh, so in, in our next 
section that we'll read, we'll clearly see that being a child and an heir of Abraham is not unconditional. Even if we see this passage as conditional, which uh, which is not. So from the following passage, uh, we will see that these promises are not conditional, not unconditional. I mean, they're clearly conditional. Not only are the promises themselves conditional, but being a one to whom the promises apply is also conditional. Although that may just be redundant. I'm not sure. Just because the conditions are not stated every time God speaks doesn't make the promises unconditional. And especially since in other places, God plainly states conditions. So notice the conditions now in the following passage. So let's go to Genesis 17. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So remember the star's promise that God had given to Abraham in the previous passage. I'll make your descendants like the stars of heaven. So this is similar to here where he says, I may multiply you. So what if Abram didn't walk blamelessly before God? What would happen? In uh, in verse 1 here, he says, Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant with you. This looks suspiciously to me like a condition. But let's keep reading. Verse 3, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, notice uh, this is, again, those exact same promises stated that were in chapter 15. This is, ex this is the same covenant, and it's the same promises, but it's stated here in a different place. Now, notice the two sides of this covenant. If the covenant is unconditional, then there would have been nothing for Abraham to do. But the passage doesn't end here. Verse 9 says, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Here there's clearly two sides to the covenant. God made promises, and then he gave Abraham something to keep, something to do. This is my covenant. Every male shall be circumcised. So here we see that this covenant is not one-sided. 
Here is a requirement and a condition placed upon Abraham and his offspring. And these are the exact same promises that were given previously with no conditions attached. The exact same promises, but now God gives Abraham conditions. And he gives Abraham his side of the covenant and what Abraham must do. Uh, let's keep reading in verse 11 here. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So what was the covenant? The covenant was land and blessings and a great nation. And circumcision was a sign of that covenant. It was Abraham's side of the covenant. Verse 12 says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if someone refused to be circumcised, they were cut off from Abraham's people and God's covenant. The land promise did not belong to them. And of course, the same would have gone for even Abraham himself. If Abraham would have refused and said, no, I'm not going to obey. I'm not going to get circumcised. Would God's land promise still belong to Abraham? Was it unconditional? It was, it was clearly conditions attached here to the exact same promises that were given in chapter 15 where the conditions were not stated. So is, is this covenant that has conditions stated in, in chapter 17 a different covenant from the one in chapter 15 where no conditions are mentioned? They're no different. They're the exact same promises in both places. It is simply restated, a restatement of the covenant in, in chapter 15 uh, with more details added. If it was a different covenant, then the promises would be different, but they're exactly the same. Land and blessings with clear conditions attached. Also notice how circumcision is tied to and is a sign of the land promise. Circumcision and walking blamelessly are Abraham's side of the covenant. Land, offspring, and blessings are God's side. Both of these are said to be everlasting. But if that's not enough, um, let's, let's read, uh, keep reading in the Old Testament uh, the conditions here that God placed upon Abraham's descendants. God always had conditions on the land promises. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, Moses gives a long discourse that I won't read for the sake of time. But again, there are clear conditions for Israel to inherit the land that God promised to Abraham. So let me just read a few select verses, but I recommend reading the entire discourse for context. So Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. 
if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And now going to verse 8. The Lord will command the blessings on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So if you read through this passage, notice that there's a lot of ifs. Uh, whenever you see an if, then that means it's conditional. And in this passage, there are a lot of ifs. Let's jump down to verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all that his commandments and his statutes I will that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 63, as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. It needs to be clearly understood that God's land promises to Abraham was never unconditional. After this message is over, uh, you can go and read Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and see if that looks conditional to you. Uh, it's it, it's very clearly, un, uh, if that looks unconditional to you, it is very clearly conditional. And of course, we know from subsequent history that that exact thing happened. They were carried off in exile to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. But if God's land promise to Abraham and his offspring was unconditional, and if the rebellious Israelites were in fact considered Abraham's offspring unconditionally, then we would have to conclude that God was unfaithful to his covenant. Was God unfaithful to his unconditional covenant? If God's land promise to Abraham and his offspring was unconditional, then we'd have to conclude that God was was uh, was unfaithful to his covenant. Because the fact of history is that they were carried off to Babylon. Was God a liar and a covenant breaker in doing that? The answer is a resounding no. Because the Abrahamic covenant did not apply to them. It did not apply to the unfaithful, idolatrous Israelites. Now, in contrast to what the Bible clearly teaches about someone being counted among Abraham's people and recipients of his covenant, let's see what John MacArthur says in contrast to what the Bible says. So this is what he says. God had made very great, very comprehensive, very specific promises to a people known as Israel. God promised them certain things. The question of God keeping those promises is a question of divine integrity. Because if God has obviated, canceled, or changed his promises to Israel, we're all in a lot of trouble. Because we have a God who can't be trusted, and who may as readily change his promise to us as he did to them. In fact, they were elected by God as his chosen nation and by his own sovereignty, unconditionally. He promised to bless them. The blessing that came on them in the Abrahamic covenant was not even conditioned upon them. In other words, God determined to do it no matter what they did. End quote. 
Honestly, I am just gobsmacked at such a statement. It is just so blatantly and demonstrably false. Now, all that being said, who is actually Abraham's offspring and heirs to God's promises to Abraham? I said earlier that whether or not you see the promises to Abraham as, as conditional or unconditional, it doesn't change the outcome of their meaning because if the promises are unconditional, being an offspring of Abraham is certainly not unconditional. So now we go uh, forward in time. We go to the New Testament. The last of the old covenant prophets, John the Baptist. He came proclaiming uh, and uh, making the way for the Messiah. This is what John the Baptist said. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So according to the prophet John, those rocks with no lineage whatsoever could become children and heirs of Abraham. If you have a problem with those rocks being recipients of God's covenant promises to Abraham, then you have a problem with the greatest of all God's prophets up to that point, John the Baptist. Jesus also said that being a child of Abraham is conditional upon someone doing the works of Abraham. Now, I can think of no higher authority to go with than Jesus. So here's what Jesus said in John 8, 30, 39 to 40. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Jesus is disputing the claim that they were truly Abraham's children. No, you're not Abraham's child if you can merely trace some lineage back to Abraham. You have to do the works of faithfulness that Abraham did. Being a child of Abraham is conditional. The Apostle Paul also contrasts the children of the flesh from the children of promise. Romans 9, 7 to 8. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Galatians three sixteen. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, which is Christ. And then in Galatians 3, 28, 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. What promise? God's promises to Abraham. Remember those land promises? Remember the promises of blessing? And the promises of being a blessing to all nations? 
if you belong to Christ, the seed of Abraham, then these promises to Abraham apply to you. And what was circumcision a sign for? Remember back in Genesis 17, God's land promised to Abraham. So circumcision was a sign of God's land promised to Abraham. If we are in Christ, the offspring of Abraham, then all the inheritance that belongs to Christ belongs to us. And that, that includes the land. Um, Philippians 3, 2-3 says, Look out for dogs, look out for evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That is uh, talking about circumcision. That was God's covenant with Abraham to be an heir of the land. But here Paul says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So who uh, who is an heir to the land? The circumcised, those who are the circumcision. So to sum up the discussion about Abraham, God's promises of blessing, land, and a nation belong first and foremost to Jesus Christ. And secondly, to those who are in Christ. So the only person with a legitimate claim to that land between the Nile and the Euphrates is Jesus, the true son of Abraham. Not those illegitimate warmongers who are fighting it out over there with no rightful claim to the land. I'm going to repeat that because it's important. The only person with a legitimate claim to the land between the Nile and the Euphrates is Jesus, the true son of Abraham. Not those illegitimate warmongers who are fighting it out with no rightful claim to the land. So that's Abraham. Now I'd like to move forward in time. And um, I'm going to just briefly mention David here, although I want to talk more about David and, uh, and the, the throne of David later on this afternoon. But I'll just briefly mention uh, David here because God promised to David, the king of Israel, that one of his descendants, so this is in 2 Samuel 7, one of David's descendants, would uh, his throne would be established forever. And uh, I think I'll read this, uh, this section. First, uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 17. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So this is speaking of David's descendants after David dies. And of course, we know that Solomon was David's son and he built his temple, the temple for God and so on. And um, 
and then David had a had a uh, dynasty. All, also, you know, uh, Rehoboam and and those who came after so- Solomon. They were also kings of Israel, and and this prophecy has a a soon fulfillment in Solomon. But we know from the New Testament that its ultimate fulfillment is Jesus, because the, the author of Hebrews quotes this prophecy as being about Jesus. In the present tense, it, it, it quotes it. So in Hebrews 1.15, it quotes it, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, quoting from this prophecy. But of course, he's not he's not quoting it in a future tense that he's saying it's going to be off into the future. In Hebrews 1, 2, he says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So he's speaking of a present reality that the Son of David, who has spoken, who has come in the world, is this king that uh, that Nathan spoke about to David. So um, I'm going to leave that there about David. I'll, I'll talk more about the throne of David later on, hopefully, this afternoon. Let's move forward in time to Daniel. This is something I wanted to cover today because this is an important um, prophecy about this coming kingdom of David, of the, the son of David. So Daniel was a young man when he got carried away to Babylon. and. Um, I really like Daniel and his prophecies because Daniel gives us some time statements. So other prophecies you can read and uh, in the Old Testament, it doesn't give us any indication of when in the future they would be fulfilled. So they that makes them less clear in terms of the timing of their fulfillment. But the prophet Daniel gives us at least two prophecies with clear time statements. That helps us in understanding their fulfillment. So Daniel was exiled in Babylon, and he had the opportunity to come before King Nebuchadnezzar and interpret the dream that none of the king's astrologers were able to interpret. This interpretation, then, that Daniel gives to Nebuchadnezzar is also a divinely inspired prophecy that Daniel gives of the time when God would establish his kingdom on the earth. So when Daniel first came before the king, he recounted his dream in detail, and then he gave its interpretation. So here's what the dream was. So this is in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 to 35. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay and partly of iron, or partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken to pieces and become like became like chaff on the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this was the dream. After Daniel finished accurately telling the king his dream, he gave the inspired interpretation that God revealed to him. This was the dream. Um, this is in verse uh, verse 36. And I'm going to read verse 36 to 38 and then verse 44 to 45. This was the dream. Now I will we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So one thing to notice in this prophecy is that it places itself within a certain window of historical time. The four kingdoms represented by the, the head of gold and the chest of silver, the, the bronze and the, and the legs, is, are the four successive empires that would rise and fall from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the head of gold, to the time when God sends the Messiah and sets up his eternal kingdom. So these empires, Daniel is telling the king, <coughs> would rise and fall. And these empires were the Chaldean kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And then came the Medo-Persian kingdom after the Chaldeans were, uh, were overthrown. And in fact, within the book of Daniel, you can even read this history. So Darius the Mede was the first to rule. Um, from the Medo-Persian kingdom. And that you can read in Daniel 5. After the Medes were, were the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And then after that came the Romans. So in this prophecy is a statement. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So the last and fourth of those successive empires was the Roman Empire. And it, it is in this very window of time when Jesus arrived and he said, he said the kingdom of God is a hand. So this remarkable fulfillment of this prophecy cannot be pushed past the end of the Roman Empire, which fell in 476 AD. And the only credible candidate for the Messiah the, the one who would bring the kingdom during this time period was the only credible candidate was Jesus Christ uh, or any other time period for that matter. It's a very straightforward prophecy and it has a 
fairly simple uh, understanding and fulfillment. It's not hard to understand. So uh, we have a time period given in the book of Daniel. We have, uh, we're told of empires that would rise and fall. And then we're said, in the days of these kings, God is going to set up his kingdom. So this is similar to, uh, it's the same kingdom that God had promised to David. He said, I will, uh, you know, uh, raise up a seed of David after you, and he will uh, he will be king over Israel forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It will never be destroyed. Here again in Daniel, we see about this kingdom. and but But here in Daniel now, we see the time frame that this kingdom was supposed to come. Within the very window of time that Jesus came. But... Uh, if the dispensational uh, dispensational claim is true that the kingdom was not actually established but it was postponed, then this prophecy uh, would not be true. So as we expect by now, dispensationalists have a way around this clear prophecy about the timing of the arrival of the kingdom of God. So instead of the kingdom being established by Jesus during the time of the Roman Empire, as Daniel teaches. They teach that the feet of this statue is actually a revived Roman Empire of the future. Some say this revived Roman Empire is today's European Union, which will be established as the new, new Roman Empire. So they teach that the feet is the revived Roman Empire of the future, <clears throat> and so there's a gap between the, the legs and the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. A, a gap of an uncertain length of time between the fall of the original Roman Empire and the rise of the future Roman Empire. So, so this maneuver uh, of prophecy allows them to deny that the kingdom was established in the first century during the time of the Roman Empire. And Daniel's prophecy, which gave a specific time frame, becomes completely meaningless when you can insert a gap of over 1,500 years between the legs and the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So, so to say that there's a gap between the Roman Empire that succeeded the Greek Empire and a future Roman Empire when God will finally send Jesus back to establish the kingdom that he failed to do the first time is, is unreasonable. It's an unreasonable interpretation since Daniel clearly mentions four successive empires. <clears throat> and each of these four empires succeeded each other with no gaps in between. To suggest that there is actually five kingdoms represented in the dream and between the fourth and the fifth kingdom is a long gap of over 1500 years is beyond um, interpreting scripture responsibly even if the modern european union would encompass approximately the same land mass and form the same style government as the ancient roman empire it still would be what daniel was referring to Daniel was referring to four successive empires that would rise and fall, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. 
The European Union is over 1,500 years too late and bears little resemblance to the ancient empire that fell with the invasion of the Germanic tribes. So I, I would suggest that we just accept that Jesus actually established the kingdom within the time frame that Daniel predicted. Um, it's almost 7 o'clock. I'm not sure if I should keep going here with Daniel. I wanted to... Um, I would say if you have some more you want to you want to cover yet, Paul. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so let me let me just still let me finish up with Daniel, and then we'll we'll save the other prophets for later. I want to look at another prophecy of Daniel, which is very important. Um, so this prophecy is another prophecy about the kingdom. Uh, this is found in Daniel chapter seven. So this prophecy is taken by dispensationalists to be speaking of Jesus when he returns to earth in, in his second coming. But a careful reading of this passage shows that the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days and receiving the kingdom is, is not speaking of the future, but if we know Jesus and his resurrection— and his ascension up to his father and his enthronement at his father's right hand, we can see the most reasonable interpretation of this prophecy, that it is about Jesus when he ascended to his father after his resurrection. So let's read um, Daniel 7, verse 9. And I'm going to skip a few, few verses here. I'm going to read verse 9, then verse 13 and 14, and then verse 18. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. So these thrones are uh, are the are the thr the thrones in heaven. The Ancient of Days took his seat. This is God's throne in heaven. And then he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this, this sounds similar language to the prophecy in Daniel 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's statue. This kingdom, uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Then he says, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Forever, forever and ever. So this is a prophecy of Jesus ascending up to his father and taking his seat at the right hand of his father in heaven. When the disciples of Jesus were looking on as he ascended to his father, it says a cloud took them out of their sight in Acts 1.9. But when Daniel saw his vision, he saw the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days, coming with the clouds. So Daniel's vision is from, we could say, the heavenly side of those clouds. 
Daniel is seeing a heavenly vision, and he's seeing the Ancient of Days seated, and he's seeing um, the Son of Man coming up and being presented before him and being coronated at his Father's right hand. So it's a heavenly scene that Daniel is looking at, not an earthly one. Psalm 110 is a famous uh, messianic psalm of David. And the New Testament authors frequently quote this psalm and apply it to Jesus. And again, it's a heavenly scene with Jesus at the right hand of his father. Psalm 110 verses 1 to 3. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So this is an, a messianic psalm of the father saying to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So where is Jesus presently sitting and reigning? He's at his father's right hand. There are numerous references in the New Testament of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father after his ascension. The right hand of God is a place of kingship and authority and is the place of his enthronement and coronation as King of Kings. Let me read you just a few verses here in the New Testament of Jesus uh, sitting at the right hand of his Father. First one is in 1 Peter 3, 18, and then verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then in Mark uh, 16, verse 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 1, 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, power, by the word of his power. After making purification, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So Jesus is at this very time ruling in the highest place of authority at the right hand of God. Does that sound like a postponed kingdom to you? Any, any teaching that says that Jesus is not reigning with all authority in heaven and on earth, is robbing Jesus of his rightful place of authority. So um, I'm going to wrap up with that. That is uh, uh, where I'll end. The prophecy, uh, the prophecies of, uh, of God to Abraham, to David, to Daniel, Isaiah, and all the other prophecies point to Jesus. Actually, I'm going to Read one more quote. I think I have time to just read a quick quote from Christopher Wright. And I think this puts a, puts a nice uh, end, end to this talk. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham comes about not merely as nations are blessed in some general sense, 
but only as they specifically come to know the whole biblical grand story of which Abraham is a key pivot. One of the reasons for the appalling shallowness and vulnerability of much that passes for the growth of the church around the world is that people are coming to some sort of instrumental faith in God that they see as powerful with some some connection to Jesus, but a Jesus disconnected from his scriptural roots. They have not been challenged at the level of their deeper worldview by coming to know God in and through the story that is launched by Abraham. Paul had not left his converts, converts vulnerable at this level, but had taught them clearly and reminds them in Galatians that their faith in Christ had embedded them in the faith and lineage of Abraham. The li- living God had turned; to, they had turned to from their dead idols had indeed announced the gospel in advance through Abraham, and they could count themselves blessed in Abraham through his seed, Messiah Jesus. Amen. I'll turn it back to you, Brother Wendell. Hey, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, wow. I really appreciate how you how you really kind of um focused in on Jesus ascension being his enthronement as king. And that's one thing I, I sat along I sat under a lot of dispensational teaching in my young years and I never quite understood what the big deal was about the ascension because we did as it was sort of somewhat a um I guess a historical or traditional thing to celebrate Ascension Day to some extent. Um, until until I until I connected it with Jesus' enthronement, like you did, and it's like, wow, that's powerful. Jesus, King of Kings, is enthroned at the at the, at the Father's right hand, and um, it's it's not just this day that like, oh, what's what's the big deal with the Ascension? It's it's Jesus, it's Jesus' enthronement. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I got I got questions, but I think I think some of them are going to be answered in the your next talk. So I'm looking forward to that this afternoon. Maybe one question I I could throw to you and see what you have to say about this to start off here. Um, I was so yesterday I was listening to some some talks by a dispensationalist, and and one one uh, one of his mantra that he kept repeating was God meant God said what he meant and he meant what he said. And the um, the criticism that dispensationalists will often use against kingdom theology, or they might call it covenant theology, and it's a little different too. But um, is that we that we, we allegorize things, statements, prophecies in Scripture rather than taking them literally? And I know that you could take a while to talk about that, Paul, but do you have any quick um, comment on that or maybe, yeah, whatever. Do you have any comment on that? Yeah. So uh, I, I will uh, cover some of that in my next talk. I, I want to look at how we look at Scripture because we have two very different starting points. Um, and I, I totally agree that Scripture is, uh, when, I, when we uh, talk about, God meant what he said and said what he meant. Well, what did God say? 
And and dispensationalists often say that God said certain things when he didn't say it. And uh, and just, for example, uh, God's covenant with Abraham. It's an unconditional, irrevocable covenant. Sure, but it's uh, but you can infer a lot of meanings into that and say, well, God's uh, God's uh, covenant is unconditional to a certain race of people. We could take God's covenant to Abraham and say, sure, it's unconditional, but who's Abraham's seed? But 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 when we uh, bring other meanings into that which God never said. Then, then we can't say that God said that because God didn't say that. So, uh, so I, I say Amen to every single time, every single prophecy. Yes, God said what He meant. He meant what He said, but He de- didn't say what dispensationalists say He said. Right. Where this often uh, comes a pro- becomes a problem is especially in relation to the land. So, so. This specific land between the Euphrates and the Nile River, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, this strip of land is said to be given to Abraham unconditionally. So if, we, if, if we're going to take that piece of land and say, okay, the seed of Abraham is literally to inhabit that land forever, then I would pack my bags and head over to Israel right now because that land would be mine. But but we also have to understand that our understanding of the of the kingdom prophecies, we we don't inherit the land until God gives it to us. So I believe in a physical land that we will inherit physically for for all eternity. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth, when when God uh, Jesus comes back and renews all things. I believe it's physical. God created the earth for man to live in. It's going to be created new. It's going to be renewed and restored. And it's not some some uh, ethereal sky palace up in the clouds. It's a renewed earth, and we can we can live here, and we can walk here. And so this land, we're going to walk the length and the breadth of it, and it's it's our inheritance as children of Abraham. So I believe in a literal fulfillment of the land promises. And I believe all the children of Abraham will literally inherit this land. And not only one little strip of land, but as, as Paul said in Romans, the whole earth. And uh, of course, uh, earth and heaven will be one. Earth will be governed by heaven. Heaven is not another planet, but it is a sphere. Uh, it is God's rule. It's God's um it's god's dwelling place and in the restored creation earth will be ruled by heaven completely so earth and heaven will be one thing and it's a it's a we could even say it's a physical place where we can live and walk and and play and uh, do whatever so yeah uh, i the land promises are literal and they will literally be inherited by abraham's seed I'm not sure what else to say on that, but yeah. yeah. No, thank you. That's that's really good. I appreciate that. Hey, okay. So open this up to other questions. If if the re- other listeners have have questions to pose to Brother Paul, bring them on.
Brother Paul, I am driving, um, but I did really enjoy at least half of your message and looking forward to listening to the first half. Very thankful your voice held out as well and uh, praying that your voice will be really strong again by three o'clock. So God bless you, brother. Thank you, Brother Brian. Thank you, Brother Paul, for sharing. Very helpful. Uh, I have a question. I wonder, are, are you covering Roman uh, 11, 25, 26, what also the dispensationalists uh, often claims? Romans 11. Um, I did, yeah, I did want to touch on that a little bit. Um, yeah, I'll talk about that this afternoon. I'll okay, make sure. Then I will listen carefully. Thank you very much. God bless Thank you. you brother. It was very helpful. Good. Thank you. Good to have you joining us, Sahar. Someone else? Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, first time on here, so I wasn't sure how, how to do it here. Um, Paul Abner here from uh, Costa Rica. Hey, Abner. I'm yeah. glad you could join us. Thank hey, you. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I, I hear I have a lot of questions, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be on this afternoon, so I'm going to ask you on here. Um, how do you respond to, uh, I hear this all the time, look at what God's doing in Israel now. Um, he gave the Jews back their homeland. Uh how do you respond to something like that? I mean, just people say, look what's happening. Uh, just the, the attempt to exterminate the Jews in the past. All of that is is indications that they are God's special family and that there is something for them in the future, uh, physically, as a race or as a family. How do you respond to that? Well, there's yeah, there's a there's a lot to think about in in what the modern nation of Israel is. The first thing I would say is that dispensationalists were were key in bringing this about. So they they very strongly um, leveraged the government uh, in both the United States and England to uh, take the Jews back to. Uh, I say take the Jews back. I, I don't think there's a there's a back for them because uh, European Jews don't originate in the Middle East to begin with. So uh, so I don't even think you can make the argument that the Jews went back to their land. You have a lot of Jews from all over Europe, um, uh, from Germany, from Russia, from England. You have a lot of Jews, European Jews going to the Middle East and making that their their home and displacing the the people that were there for thousands of years. So I don't think you can really make the argument that the Jews went back. Some of them you could probably, some of the Yemeni Jews and some other Jews maybe from Iran, from other places that do have roots back there. But uh, Judaism has become so dispersed and so intermingled and um, 
I, I wouldn't say the Jews went back to their homeland because that's, that's uh, I don't think that's accurate to say. But just from a political point of view, uh, the dispensationalists were were the ones that brought this quote unquote prophecy to fulfillment. And they say, oh, look what God did. This is amazing. This is a miracle of history that the Jews are back in their land. Well, they're the ones that created it, and they're the ones that made it happen. Um, so I don't see it as, as anything remarkable. I mean, what is the Zionist government in Israel? Is it some reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom? It's a secular nation state that... I mean, there's there's zero resemblance to anything that Old Testament Israel was. It's just because that you have a a culture of people that came out of the, the Jewish religion, and you have them moving into this country in the Middle East and forming a government, and then calling it Israel. I I don't see any legitimate connection there to Abraham or to ancient Israel at all. Um, no more than North Korea or or the world's newest nation, South Sudan. Was that the hand of God? Was that a fulfillment of prophecy? Um, I don't think so. I, I think we have to be grounded in what the scriptures actually teach. We can read our newspapers and say, oh, this is amazing. But what does the Bible actually teach? Does the Bible teach anything like that? And if it's, it doesn't, then we can't say it's a fulfillment of prophecy. So for whatever that's worth, that's my answer. Yeah, thank you. I uh, enjoyed hearing your thoughts, sir. I have a question. Uh, do I understand correctly that you say that the Jews of, of uh, Europe just aren't really Jews? If that's not the case, then I stand corrected. But if it is what you're saying, why would the Germans in the Nazi Germans have bothered to kill six million of them? Or do you deny that that happened? Uh, of course, I wouldn't deny that, Dan. Um, what I'm, what I would say about the modern Jew, the modern religion of Judaism. So after the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, the Jews were dispersed all over Europe and the Middle East and, and so on. And so they became they became intermingled with, actually way before that, but the northern kingdom of Israel, when they were conquered by Syria, they took uh, most of Israel captive into other nations. But then in AD 87, the, the real dispersion happened. And Old Covenant Judaism came to a complete end. It did not exist anymore with the destruction of the temple. And so Judaism, as the, the ones that survived 70 AD, had to, had to make do with what they had. And so they completely reinvented Judaism. Now it became a, a, uh, a religion that could be transported anywhere. It was no longer connected to the temple. It was no longer connected to sacrifices. It was now a a, uh, a universal religion, and and the Jews were spread throughout Europe, and so they intermingled with other people as well. There's historical accounts of 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 them intermingling, 
And if you just look at Jews today, in every place where they reside, say in Ethiopia, or say in Spain, or in Northern Europe, they resemble the people where they live. You have blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jews in Europe. You have uh, black-skinned Jews in Ethiopia. You have brown-skinned Jews in uh, in Spain. They intermingled with the population where they lived. And so if, if we're going to say Judaism is a race, well, it's not a race. It's anything but a race. There's simply a population of people of a religion and a culture in the place where they happen to live. And so um, the Jews that the Nazis persecuted, they were, um, first of all, a religion and a culture. And uh, of course, of course, they were seen at that time also as a, a an in, inferior race, which that that concept of a race didn't come and come along until later. But but anyways, yeah, I, I'm not sure what uh, like. So when you say the Jews from Europe went back to their homeland, where is their homeland? I, I'm not sure. Like this, like my my uh, racial makeup, I can't say that I have a homeland. Um, when there's a mixture of different peoples and cultures in my in my ethnicity, so um, I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Okay, well, if there's no other questions for now, we'll, we will uh, wrap this up and we'll look forward to this afternoon at three o'clock um, talking about from from the the page on Strength of Strength that says Paul's going to unpack how the long-awaited prophecies have been fulfilled in the Messiah's kingdom. So that's, that's I'm looking forward to that, Paul. God bless you. Hope your voice is continues to work out for this afternoon. And do you want to lead us in a, in a closing prayer, Paul? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kingdom that you established, that Jesus established at his coming. And we thank you that now those who have been brought into this kingdom can truly rejoice and walk in newness of life and walk in victory and in fulfillment of your purposes for us. So thank you for Jesus, the true King, the Messiah the King of Israel, who we can uh, enter into and enter into covenant with God. So we thank you that you have, uh, that we have a covenant with you and that you love us and, and provide for us. Go with us as we go, go about our day. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. And God bless you all. Looking forward to seeing you on here again soon. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.